It's time for Brainerd Outdoors on B93.3. Brought to you by The Power Lodge, SCR Northern, Thielen Meats, Vimer Outdoors Archery Pro Shop, SW Bait and Tackle, Oars and Mine Marine in Crosby, Ice Sports Custom Fish Houses, Bermel Shoe Store in Randall, and by Radco, your truck accessory pros. Now, here's your host for Brainerd Outdoors, Brian Moon. And welcome into this week's show. Plenty to cover. I think our uh, ice fishing is pretty much done for the year. So we're going to go wall-to-wall turkeys on the show this week with the turkey opener coming up on uh, Wednesday here in Minnesota. So we'll talk quite a bit about that, some tactics for early season, the history of the wild turkey here in the state. Plus, we're going to dig through the archives, found an interview with a local CO officer that helped out a couple of deer that were locked up. And he had kind of an alternative method to get them unlocked. You'll love that story. All that and more on this week's edition of Brainerd Outdoors. And we'll kick off the show uh, talking turkey. And we're going to do a lot of that on the show this week. And once again, the uh, opener is coming up on Wednesday. And Dan Zimmerman joins us. He's with the National Wild Turkey Federation here in Brainerd. And I guess early season, Dan, there's a lot of things you do a lot differently than you would, say, a month from now. Right. Early season, I guess the advantage there is that the birds have been pinned up, you know, so to speak, all winter. They... They yard up like deer, and they're a little easier to call in, and and they are not as gun-shy or or call-shy as uh, certain hunters would call it because they haven't heard that noise for over a year. And so they're real receptive. They're coming into their breeding cycle. It makes it a little bit easier. Guy doesn't have to work quite as hard but still has to get out and scout versus a late-season hunt where... Maybe you got to change up those calls more often and maybe uh, do a little more scouting to find out where the birds are as far as being able to pattern them. Typical sign would be tracks in the mud, feathers from under a roost, open areas where they've been strutting. You might find an area in a field where there might be a shallow depression, and that's actually where they've uh, feather dusted themselves. Or on gravel roads, you'll notice where they've been dragging their wings and, you know, it, it, it takes a subtle eye to really notice this kind of stuff. But if you've ever watched turkeys, and that's the key, don't always pull the trigger or get real excited about dispatching a bird because you'll learn a lot about what they do, especially if they don't come in right away when they strut or cut and you can see their wings dragging in the dirt or how they'll flutter in a dust pile, you know, to you know, get rid of bugs just like any other bird. And when you mentioned calls, um, and, you, and you said later on in the year you want to vary up your calls, what do you like to do this time of year? Well, first of all, I like to get a locator call early in the morning so that you got an idea that the birds are even there. Early scouting, you'll use a owl hooter. Just any kind of a sound that will make a turkey gobble to you off the roost. Crow calls, a coyote call, that sort of thing. Those were the other two that I was thinking about. And Early in the morning before they come off the roost, you'll hear them gobble back to you. A lot of times you can just slam the door on the car and they'll gobble right back. That's how receptive they are to noise. Uh, In particular here south of town, you know, the geese are moving forward and they're real noisy in the morning. They'll gobble at them. Sandhill cranes, they gobble right back at them. You know, when they're doing their noises in the morning and getting ready to go, turkeys respond to that sort of thing yeah actually my first year that i hunted i, I noticed uh, i was hunting just below a farm and the chickens and the i just started going crazy early in the morning 
And that's what triggered them to start gobbling. That's where I knew they were at. Right. So if, when you locate one early in the morning, you got a pretty good idea where he's at in the roost. Um, and if this is preseason scouting, I mean, you got a pretty good idea. They are pretty patternable. They do the same things pretty much every day unless they're really disturbed by some outside source. But once you've located them on a roost, you can just about guarantee you know, those big oaks or those big pines are going to hold turkeys early in the morning. And then once they come down off of the roost, then it's a matter of, you know, moving around, finding what they're doing, and locating them that way. Early season is early in the morning the best time as compared to, say, maybe uh, dusk? Well, dusk becomes the, you know, putting one to bed, as they call it. And I like early morning because that's when they're opening up in the day. They're, they, they do, you know, gobble more in the early morning as the sun is coming up versus in the afternoon or evening when they go on to roost. And again, a locator call going down a lowly gravel road or, you know, minimum maintenance road will certainly locate a turkey for you. And then that'll tell you, too, if you do locate one, that he's going to be there in the morning. Just don't disturb him, and hopefully nobody else will. Come next morning, if you want to do the same thing and do a locator call before the sun comes up, it's a good idea that, you know, you'll know he's there. And how much do decoys come into play early season, Dan? I wouldn't go out without one. Hundreds of them out there, and just like calls, which one do you choose? I mean, keep it simple is the main thing. Turkeys are not real. They say they're not real smart, but they can see and hear like crazy. So especially in the breeding season for a big gobbler, if he sees a hen, receptive hen, or a jake that's trying to mount a, you know, a hen in a receptive position, I mean, that's... He's a fighting man coming in. One thing I was going to ask you, when I was back in Wisconsin, we were setting up some natural blinds of where we're going to be hunting at. But one area that we found a lot of turkey sign, a tree stand that we had for deer hunting, was right there. And we thought, why not use that? But I had read somewhere, and I don't know if this is true or not, that turkeys will look up first, so that might not be the best place to to, to sit. Is that true? Yes, there is some truth in that and the fact that they're looking for birds of prey and they're kind of looking up all the time, and other critters that might be in the trees like the fisher or the bobcat, that's one thing that they're looking for. I would say raccoons or other tree climbers like that are not quite as, uh, like a possum or something like that, is not going to give a turkey a hard time like a cat or a, or a fisher, you know, fierce-type predator. Uh, birds of prey, not so much that the big turkey is going to be afraid of like an eagle or an owl, but it's just that inbred instinct that they're looking up because they're wanting to protect their poults when they finally hatch and are, are developing. Tree stands are good, you know, just like, you know, being up in there with a blind with uh, maybe a bow, how you can conceal yourself, and you are concealed. It's just that you got to be careful on how much movement that you're going to do. Um, certainly some of these tripod stands are excellent. You know, you can move in those and... If you get the heads up on them first, you can have your gun ready and watch them coming in and make no movement, and boom, you've got them. So there's some advantages to it, but again, if you're going to have a portable tree stand, you got to limit your movement. It's Dan Zimmerman with the National Wild Turkey Federation here in the Brainerd Chapter. And Dan, I appreciate the information. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right, when we come back, another turkey contributor to the show, Rollin Hill, is going to drop by. And he's going to talk some early season tactics as well, where he likes to hunt, and some calling tactics, plus a whole lot more. When we come back to Brainerd Outdoors on B93.3. 
Whether it's for fun, sport, or hunting, if you love to shoot, you know it's important to go to a gun shop that has everything you need. That's Freedom Firearms in Brainerd. Freedom Firearms isn't a huge gun shop, which means Russ, the owner, attends to his customers. They carry rifles, shotguns, pistols, suppressors, distance precision rifles, plus ammo and accessories and gunsmithing. Plus, they offer $25 transfer fees. Buy, sign, or trade at Freedom Firearms, two blocks east of the historic water tower between Little Caesars and O'Reilly. Welcome back to Brainerd Outdoors on B93.3 And we continue to talk turkey here on the show Another contributor is Rollin Hill And uh, Rollin's going to talk a whole bunch about uh, where he likes to hunt uh, Some calls, he's going to demonstrate some of those as well But first off, Rollin, I suppose we should talk about having the right gun Because you need to have that when you head out to the woods Yes. You know, when everybody starts turkey hunting, I think they grab their shotgun, put in some turkey loads, and go. I always encourage people to really take some time and probably buy a specific turkey choke for their Remington 870 or for their Benelli Nova or whatever gun they may have. Their favorite grouse gun or favorite duck gun can work for turkey hunting. And it's it's always works for, I think, a lot of first-time people because I don't encourage people to go out and necessarily buy a specific turkey gun like I do, but try the turkey gun, try to do that, buy a choke, buy ammunition, turkey, or uh, pattern your turkey gun, know where it's shooting, because it will shoot in different areas, and find the right ammunition for it and go have fun. I like to use a kind of a variable shot pattern, so I use a five, six, seven, maybe in a heavy shot or a federal third degree. I like that. I also like federal five shot itself. I used to shoot a lot of three and a half inch, but now I'm going back to three because I'm getting older. And, <laughs> and it's We all uh, are. <laughs> yeah, it hurts, your, it hurts your shoulder, I think, more with the three and a halfs. But you can really reach out there and shoot with the three and a halfs. But I think, especially around here, where a lot of the hunting is within the woods, I don't think you need the three and a halfs. Uh, Mossberg Model 535, which is a turkey gun, it has a adjustable stock. It has a 20-inch barrel. It also has a turkey choke. It's a pump. It'll shoot two and three-quarter to three-inch, three-and-a-half-inch. It's a great gun because I own one. Shot a lot of turkeys with. I really love the gun. Also, we, and those, you know, it's somewhere around the five, 550 range for that. And then there's a couple other ones, the Stevens model. I think there's one for right around the high twos, specifically for turkey two with a turkey choke on there. So uh, let's talk some tactics. Uh, early season that's when things can be a little interesting because they're not spooked yet. Yeah, I think early season's really good. I, lately, we've been seeing a lot of toms strutting in the fields. We're hearing them starting to gobble really good. I don't think they're totally broke up yet. They're going to do that. They do that, I guess, every day. Every day changes. And I, I think right now it's really good to get out and start scouting. That's what I've been doing for the last week or so. And, and just checking out the activities and where they're at. But they're not in their typical spots quite yet at least my spots that I have, which is probably 100 of them. And um, we'll talk more about that on how I find my turkeys. But I, I don't think they've totally made that break up yet, but they're going to do that. Let's talk about scouting because, for once again, people that are maybe doing this for the first time, it's going to be nice this weekend, so it's going to be a perfect weekend to get out and scout. Uh, what should they be looking for? I always say turkey hunting, you scout with your ears, not your eyes. Because you have to really go and if you have permission to hunt some land, it's great. Yeah, you can go out there and look. But the best thing to do is get up at 5.30 right now and drive to where you're going to turkey hunt and start listening for toms. Start listening for gobbles. And that's really what you have. If you have a tom gobbling out there, typically he's going to be close. 
uh, when you he's not guaranteed he's going to be there, but you have to go out there and listen for him. You listen for the gobbles. I always, I specifically hunt a lot of public land. Most of my hunting is done on public land. I don't have any private land access because I just make it a challenge to hunt all public land birds. And in Aiken County, there's 400,000 acres, and there's a lot of land over here in Crow Wing County, uh, Mille Lacs County. Uh, all the counties around us have a lot of public land that hold a lot of birds. So we'll drive, call, drive, call, drive, call, listen for toms, listen for toms, mark those spots, and then when hunting season, we'll come back, and hopefully there's birds there. Habitat-wise, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a lot of pine trees? Are you looking for you know brushy areas? I think they roost a lot in pines. They like... Big Norways, big white pines to roost, but they'll also pick the biggest tree in the woods, I guess, and, and do that. Uh, they like, I don't know if there's anything specific. I, I always say turkeys are in the woods more than they're in the actual in the fields. That's my opinion uh, because you don't see them a lot, uh, especially during the middle of the day. They're out roaming. They're always in the woods. But it seems like around here they, they'll use logging trails a lot. Mm-hmm. They'll, use, they'll use little openings in the woods to strut and to have areas for for breeding and things like that. Yeah, because I've shot them in open fields. I've shot them in thick woods. I've shot them in river bottoms. I mean, they're all over the place. As far as calling goes, uh, Rollin, what does one want to do, especially these first couple of weeks? You know, I always say calling is good to get the attention. You have to get the attention of the bird. Once you get them to gobble, I always like to sit a little bit still and see what they're going to do. I also like to move. So I'm not specifically set up for decoys a lot. But if I'm in an area like a woods, I'll try to get closer to that bird to show some to show me moving towards the bird. I think that's important. If you can't move towards the bird, move one side or the other or go back just so you can call once, get his attention, uh, go, go towards him or make a little move, sit down, see where he's at, maybe call again, get him to gobble. If he does that, that's great. Also, the one thing is, is when he's coming, if he's coming towards you and he gobbles to you without you calling – Sit down, get your gun up, and enjoy the show because he's coming. That's typically what I found out. And if anything, I'll give just light purrs when they get closer or scratch on the ground just to make it sound like there's a turkey there. But I'm not a big fan of doing a lot of calling just to get their attention, let them know you're there. I I have a box call here, so there's a lot of things that you can do. There's some aggressive calling, and then there's some real minor calling. So a lot of times when you're going to get their attention on the woods, you may want to be aggressive. So really loud, that's with the box call. You can do the similar with the mouth call. So it's it's you, that was a mouth call. I like to use mouth calls because it doesn't show a lot of movement. I like to use box calls to do it. When they're getting closer, um, you may want to just do real light. Um, when they're moving towards you, really light. Or even some purrs. It's hard for me to do this there. That's on a box call. Um, otherwise, with the mouth call, really light yelps. Just don't go too crazy with it. Those are like purrs and putts, that sort of thing. You kind of mix that in. Scratch the leaves a little bit. Make sure they're coming. The biggest thing is, is you just don't want to overcall when you're when you have the birds coming in i've hunted enough birds where i kind of have an idea what that tom is doing but it takes many many years yeah <laughs> I, I would say that's my biggest mistake i think a lot of times i've overcalled, um and i think the uh, hunters that's probably the biggest mistake they make 
Yeah, and I think so. And not knowing when. It's it's really not overcalling. It's not knowing when you have to vocalize, when you have to make that call. It's It takes years. And that's the fun part about turkey hunting. You had mentioned earlier when we were talking about scouting, you scout with your ears, not with your eyes. But are there some visuals that you want to look for, scratching in the leaves and the ground and all of that stuff? Yeah, I think I think you want to look, especially if you're on back roads, gravel roads, uh, especially after a rain, you want to look for tracks. And then you want to see, you can see their feathers when they're strutting. You, they, they, it, you can see that they're scratching, the feathers are going actually into the ground, kind of going in circles, semicircles, and things like that. You can see that specifically. You also look for feathers. I've found feathers. It's like, well, there's turkeys here. Um, that sort of stuff. So I think that's important to look for, too. You also mentioned something, you and I were talking off air, about the curve. And explain to me and, and our listeners what that's all about. The curve, just think of it as a U. So the top of the U on the left side is opening weekend and the first couple weeks of turkey season. And, and it slowly goes down. And then the bottom of that U, and I know a lot of people hunt right around the 1st of May, one, I would say May 1 through 10, uh, you really have to be a good turkey hunter because that's when the toms are typically locked down with hens big time. And they and you'll you'll catch jakes. I mean, we talked a little bit before the show. You'll see a lot of jakes roaming around, but a lot of toms are locked down with hands. And then it slowly, gradually starts going up. And to be honest with you, that last week of May is one of the best weeks of turkey hunting that I've had in the last I don't know how many years because nobody's hunting them, everybody's fishing, and the toms are now roaming around looking for hands because most of the hands are bred. But they're still in that breeding mode, so they will strut and they will come, and they will come in good at the end of May. I'm going to be hunting both Wisconsin and Minnesota the first two weeks of May. What am I going to run into there? Uh, you'll probably run into some lockdown birds. <laughs> <laughs> Just my luck. <laughs> at the same time, you know, a lot of those tactics, you're, going to, you're talking about hunting Wisconsin, you're going to be a lot of fields, probably that sort of stuff. So you can kind of get in there. You can kind of sit on the edge of fields and, and kind of wait for them kind of try to pattern them the day before, see where they're moving. A lot of times they're creatures of habit. In Minnesota, you just have to find the right the right Tom that doesn't have a girlfriend. <laughs> that's really what it is. Yeah, that's the tricky part. Um, one other thing, too, you mentioned you're not a big fan of decoys. Uh, a lot of hunters like to use them, but uh, you don't necessarily like to. Here's my reasoning is because once I have, and again, I'm hunting in the woods a lot. Once I have their attention and they're coming towards me, and this takes years to figure these toms out. I can hear them strutting by their, by their spitting and, 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 and strutting. You can hear that, uh, the drumming, spitting drum. You can hear that in the woods from a long ways away. And once you hear that, you know he's looking for the, for the hand. So trying to be a little bit discreet about it, he'll come in with his head up looking all around, and he's trying to find that hen, and he'll keep coming. I, I found that. The other thing is, is I've had too many toms lock up. So if I put decoys out, typically I'll put them behind me. So I'll put them 20 yards behind me, and I'll sit 20 yards in front of it from where he's coming. And then a classic example of last year during the first May season, uh, my nephew Jordan and I were hunting, and we threw the decoy about 30 yards behind us. And, and where did that bird lock up? Bird locked up at 50 yards from the decoy, but 20 yards from us. And he shot a beautiful tom that morning. And really, in reality, he locked up and started to strut back and forth on the little trail, back and forth. He wouldn't come any farther. And we just watched the show, and then he shot the bird. But it's truly, they will lock up on you and do that. And just maybe for somebody that's new to the sport, too, that's the big thing with turkeys is not so much smell or anything like that or something they hear. Eyesight is impeccable. 
they have the greatest eyes. I have sat in fields and moved my arm, and they'll look right at you at 300 yards away. I, I can't believe the eyesight they have. So camel pattern is very important. You have to be camel, and really it's just movement. You can't move. So you have to constantly position when that bird's coming in before he can see you. And by ears, you hear him where he's coming and then get your gun ready so you don't have to swing the gun from one way to the other. Briefly mentioned, and I think that's something we can touch on again, uh, for people that don't know, if they don't, if they're not a landowner, there's plenty of land around here for people to hunt. Yes, there's a cool app. It's called Onyx Hunt. That'll give you all the property owners, plus it'll give you all the public land. And you drive around, it's GPS coordinated, so you can drive around and you know exactly where you're at. Or go buy a plat book. Um, I think you can buy them here at the county. You can buy them at Aiken County. Buy a plat book and you kind of just go on the roads and look for that public land. I am a firm believer that there's more birds on public land than there is on private land, but that's that's me and that's the way I approach it. But I just approach it. It's really good out there to go out and find the birds. Fun time of the year. Rollin Hill. Which, Rollin, thanks. Great information, and we'll look forward to having you on the show again. Thanks again. All right. When we come back to Brainerd Outdoors, we'll talk to the DNR about uh, the history of the wild turkey here in Minnesota and how to keep wild turkeys wild when we come back to Brainerd Outdoors on B93.3. You're listening to the place for everything outdoors in the Brainerd Lakes and beyond. Brainerd Outdoors Radio, just after 7, Saturday mornings, Sunday evenings at 7, and Monday mornings at 5, right here on B93.3. Now here's your host, Brian Moon. I saw this story on the website for the DNR about helping wild turkeys stay wild, and I thought to myself, how did we get to this point and how turkeys have done so well? We're lucky enough to be joined by Bill Penning. Bill is the Farmland Wildlife Program Leader with the DNR, and we're going to get a little background on the wild turkey, why they decided to to have them uh, implemented here in Minnesota, and why they've thrived so well. And, and Bill, it's really kind of a surprising thing, and then again, maybe not so much, huh? Well, yeah, actually, uh, we've been more successful, I think, than we ever anticipated in the early days. A um, little bit about the history. Um, prior to European settlement, uh, we believe that turkeys were widespread in um, the very extreme southern part of the state, up the Mississippi River and uh, up the St. Croix a uh, little ways. Um, they were extirpated from nearly all of their range by the early 1900s, and that was primarily through uh, subsistence hunting. You know, they were shot with rifles, and you know people were taking them for food. They were reported extirpated by the 1880s, and we have some documentation on that. In 1926 and 1957, there were attempts to reestablish turkeys in Minnesota using game farm birds, uh, and both of those failed. Um, in 1964 through 1968, 39 Miriam's turkeys, which is a western subspecies of turkeys, the eastern wild turkey is the one that, uh, that's native here, they were stocked in uh, the Whitewater Wildlife Management Area down in extreme southeastern Minnesota. And they took at first, um, but eventually they started to fade away. Then um, in 1971, in 1973, we were able to obtain a total of 39 true eastern wild turkeys, and we released those birds at Whitewater, and they started doing very well. Um, from there, we started our own trap and transplant program where we would, um, in the wintertime, we would catch turkeys, move them to new suitable habitat, and we also supplemented those birds with uh, birds from other places like Arkansas, Illinois, Wisconsin, New York, and Missouri. And so for many years, 
we started moving turkeys every winter. We'd move turkeys to new locations, new locations. Now we've got turkeys throughout all of their possible habitat in Minnesota. They go from uh, the Iowa border to the Canadian border in the western part of the state, uh, they, and they go from Houston County to Rock County um, across the southern part of the state. Uh, so uh, we have turkeys in pretty much every place except for the boreal forest in Minnesota. So they've actually expanded beyond their historical range. We're now to the point where we've finished our trap and transplant program, so we consider it to be a huge success. Yeah, you mentioned that 39 birds that were released in southeastern Minnesota about 40 years ago, and now they're saying somewhere around 70,000 is where we're at. Is that correct? Yeah, it's really tough to get an accurate estimate on turkey populations, but we usually use about 70 to 75,000 birds, and we feel that that's, um, that that's a pretty good number. You know, and the thing, too, you mentioned a lot of them are that Eastern European strain, uh, and then you had also said that you took from other areas. Are some of these birds now kind of hybrids of ones that were originally planted here, or is some of those original strains still in the population? Well, um, the Miriam's turkeys um, that eventually faded away, every once in, their, their tail is a little bit lighter, and every once in a while somebody will shoot a bird, um, that's got a lighter tail. And then the question will come up is, are those, some of those Miriam genes still out there? We think probably not. We think that all the birds that we have are uh, true eastern wild turkeys. Do you guys even, sitting back, you know, taking a look at it now 40 years later, did you ever think in a million years that they would do this well? Or did you kind of have an idea that, you know, with a little bit of luck, this could happen? No, turkeys uh, actually have surprised us quite a bit over the years. Um, you know, they were extirpated not only from Minnesota, but throughout pretty much their entire range. Um, and uh, in the 1960s and 70s, they were only found in extremely large blocks of forest, essentially where they were inaccessible to people. And so as late as 1980, we were writing in our turkey plans that the minimum habitat size for turkeys was a thousand acres of uninterrupted high-quality mature woods. Uh, we've learned that they'll live uh, in your woodlot up back behind your house as long as they've got enough corn to eat, you know, and so they've adapted really well once we've gotten them back and had controlled hunting rather than uncontrolled hunting. Um, they've adapted very well to the agricultural landscape. With the increase in population, do you see the increase in areas to hunt turkeys, or are we pretty much where we're going to be for a while? No, we've been uh, we've been pushing the uh, air, the range for turkey hunting um, north uh, for a long time now, and starting in the spring of 2012, we have entirely restructured our turkey permit. Uh, areas. Um, last year we had 78 permit areas. This year we're going to have 12 large permit areas and that is actually has additional land beyond the 78 that we had last year. So uh, once again we're opening more area on the northern edge and western part of the turkey range in, in northwest Minnesota. Opportunities to hunt turkeys have, have increased dramatically. Um, our first turkey hunting season um, was in 1978. We had 420 permits. We harvested 94 birds. Last year, in 2010, um, for our spring season, um, well, I should say for 2011, for our spring season, we essentially had unlimited permits. We had 56,000 permits for the first six seasons and unlimited for the last two seasons, and we harvested over 10,000 birds. In the fall, um, the numbers 
are smaller because fall turkey hunting hasn't been as popular in Minnesota because we have so many other things that we can do. But we had our first fall season in 1990. Um, we had 1,000 permits. We harvested 326 birds. In 2010, which is the last year we have data for, um, we had over 10,000 permits, and we, we harvested 1,300 birds. The number of, of new hunters ent entering into turkey hunting is increasing all the time. Um, we're retaining the hunters that we have. Um, we're happy about that. It's one of the areas of hunting that's, con that's continuing to grow rather than declining. We have been able to expand the range and the turkey population and thus the number of permits and opportunities quite rapidly. So we're getting to the point where we're starting to be able to meet our demand. And in fact, the last four time periods will be uh, open to over-the-counter sales. They'll be unrestricted. So anybody who wants to hunt, if they're willing to hunt later in the season, they can go right down to their ELS station, buy a license, and go hunting. That's amazing. That is amazing how far we've come there. And and really, I got my first hunting experience turkeys um, in Wisconsin, Bill, and there's they're thriving over there, too. Uh, did you guys, along with Minnesota here and Wisconsin, did you kind of work hand-in-hand hand a little bit with each other to see how they would do, or did each state kind of have their own plan? And Wisconsin, because probably a little bit more agriculture, they were able to thrive a little bit more. Um, you know, each state kind of had their own plan. We coordinated some. We traded turkeys back and forth, that kind of thing. Um, you have to realize that half of the state of Wisconsin is south of the most southern portion of Minnesota. So Wisconsin has got more turkey habitat than Minnesota does, and birds over there have just thrived. Um, they they do really well in Wisconsin, and we're starting to see that here. I don't know if we've got the habitat to ever have the sort of harvest that they do in Wisconsin, um, but our harvest is increasing, and I think we're doing quite well. Now we should probably, being that they are doing quite well, uh, they're getting a little bit desensitized somewhat uh, to humans, and that could pose a problem, Bill, and there's things that people can do to kind of help make these turkeys stay kind of in their own habitat. You know, we occasionally end up with reports of uh, nuisance turkeys or depredating turkeys, and um, typically, um, in fact, always with nuisance turkeys, um, somebody's feeding those birds. Uh, and sometimes it breaks out into being a conflict between neighbors. You've got one guy who really loves the turkeys and is feeding them, then you've got other people around who aren't so, so keen on those turkeys because turkeys are large birds and they can become aggressive. So the, you really should not feed turkeys if, if you can help it, especially on purpose. If you are feeding turkeys and you have a problem, you need to stop feeding turkeys and um, they'll go away. Another thing that you can do is is harass the turkeys. You can spray them with a garden hose, let your dog chase them around, do that kind of thing. As long as the living is, is easy, the turkeys will stay there. Make them uncomfortable, they'll move on. You watch the media and, and um, the conflicts that occur always involve somebody feeding them. I can't stress how key that factor is. And how much of a problem is people raising their own turkeys, uh, Bill? Is that something you guys are looking at, too? Yeah, um, we, it, it's actually illegal to um, release turkeys in Minnesota without a permit from the DNR, and we don't issue those permits. We have a policy to not do that. Any turkey that you can buy, uh, whether it's an egg or, or a bird down at the, at the feed store, even if they're called a wild turkey, they in fact are not wild turkeys. They're a subspecies called the bronze turkey, which looks very much like a wild turkey, 
but is genetically inferior to turkeys, and we don't want those genes getting out into the wild population. So we, we strongly discourage people from releasing wild turkeys. Now, the good news is that in areas where turkeys have become established through our efforts, we don't see people releasing turkeys anymore. There's a lot of people that have good intentions in areas where we didn't have turkeys, and they were going to help us out by putting some turkeys out there. And we, we discourage that, and we see as the wild turkey population builds that uh, people realize they don't need to do that. Well, and the, the thing, too, I don't know why people would even want to do that because the, the threat of disease, and then you start wiping out a population, uh, that's probably the biggest threat, right, by doing something like that? Yeah, disease is always a, a potential problem. I think uh, in turkeys it's a bigger problem in southern states than it is in Minnesota. Um, really don't have a lot of disease problems in Minnesota so far, knock on wood. Um, we've had avian pox a couple of times, which is um, not a threat to humans at all, uh, but it is to poultry, uh, and it's a, a disease that occurs within poultry. Now, the University of Minnesota Extension tells us that the probability of wild turkeys transmitting it to domestic birds, like a turkey farm, is almost zero. It's more likely that it would come from a turkey farm to the wild population but we haven't had those problems at all. We've been lucky. So knock on wood, as you said, we don't have to worry about that. Now, if somebody does have a turkey uh, bill that does become aggressive and, and they need to get it out of there, don't want to do it themselves, uh, do they just want to contact the DNR? Is that the best thing to do? Yes, you should um, contact the DNR area wildlife manager. Their names and locations and phone numbers uh, can be found on the DNR website, and we can offer you some technical assistance and we can also offer you permits to remove those birds. We cannot go out and get them ourselves. We simply don't have the staff, but we're willing to give you as much assistance as we can. So there you go, some fantastic information uh, about the wild turkey situation here in Minnesota, and it's suffice to say things are going quite well. It's Bill Penning. He is the uh, Farmland Wildlife Program Leader with the Minnesota DNR. Uh, Bill, we thanks a ton for all the information. It's great talking to you, and hopefully we'll get a chance to chat with you here in the future, okay? You bet. You have a nice day. More of Brainerd Outdoors after this on B93.3. Welcome back to Brainerd Outdoors on B93.3. Hard to believe that we are going into year 15 celebrate that anniversary here the first of december 15 years of granted outdoors so i thought um you know maybe we'll dig through the archives especially now we're in kind of in that in-between time we're doing some turkey hunting but uh it's gonna be a little while i think before we can open water fish hopefully not but uh, i thought we'd dig through the archives and uh, each week here for the next few weeks bring you some uh Interviews from the last 15 years that really I, I thought were really, really fun to do. And uh, this is the first one in that installment. I uh, talked with a local CO right around deer season, I think. And I, I do not remember the year, but uh, it was some years back. But um, he had a very interesting uh, altercation with uh, two bucks that were locked up. And that happens from time to time when they get their antlers locked. And he had a really interesting method on how to get him unlocked. And we'll pick it up there. Now, you hear stories from time to time. I know I've heard a ton of them. I have two bucks that'll, that'll be fighting, especially during the rut season. They'll get themselves locked up. And a lot of times it ends up bad for both deer. Well, you got a call here not too long ago, and you came across something that was uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, I was actually taking a day off on a Sunday. It was a Sunday uh, before deer season. A landowner called, said he was out building a deer stand, and he went out to go check a 
a cattail slough. There's a little slough right below his deer stand, 7,500 yards away from his stand. And he walked down to go check uh, what the water level was down in the, in the wet area there. He walked into it and saw a deer standing there. And he said he, the head was down and the deer wasn't running away. And he almost knew right off the top of his head that there was another deer laying there that was probably dead locked up. He said just the way it was standing there. He was pretty sure that there were, there were locked bucks. And sure enough, he walked into them and... Uh, there they sat. The one was already dead, and, and uh, the one that still was uh, pretty much alive yet. So he ended up calling State Patrol, and State Patrol called me. And just as I got the phone call, my dad was driving into the yard. He was going to come visit for the afternoon. And so I hung up the phone, and Dad walked in the house. And I said, you want to go for a ride? And So I suited up and put my uniform on. And Dad said, what are you going to do? I said, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, basically kind of started off with uh, I was going to, get some rope. I didn't know how, how alive this deer was going to be yet. If it was almost dead, if it was you know still full of fire, I had no idea. So I grabbed a blanket and some rope and without really knowing what I was going to do with any of this stuff, as I was getting ready, Dad told me, he says, well, he said, I've heard of guys actually shooting, shooting the antlers off and that's supposed to work. And I said, well, that's an option. We'll see what happens when we get there. So we get there and landowner drove us back. It was two or three mile drive off the main road, actually, kind of back in the sticks. And Within seconds, I knew we weren't going to be able to get close enough to that to the deer to, to do anything with our bare hands type stuff. The live deer was a, I call him a 14-point, but all I really know for sure is that he had seven on one side, and the other side was real similar, so it was a 13, 14, 15-point deer or something like that, and it was a pretty large deer. The dead one was a 10-pointer. He wasn't quite as big. He was, he was kind of the, the borderline type deer where... Some guys won't even shoot it if they're in the, in the trophy hunting, and the next guy might shoot it and put it on his wall. So it was kind of that borderline 10-pointer. Pretty nice deer, though. That 14 was pretty much tossing him around like a rag doll. It looked like you, you take a rope bone, and you're playing with your dog, and you're playing tug-of-war with your dog, and you start kind of whipping your dog across the floor. Um, that's kind of what was happening with these two guys. It was amazing how, how powerful that deer was. Dad says, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know, maybe I can shoot it off. And the landowner says, well, I don't know. Think, says, what are you going to shoot it with? And I said, well, I've got a rifle, I've got a shotgun, I've got a handgun. What am I going to use? And I kind of hammered it around a little bit. And the deer was actually down in that cattail swamp or slough, and he was pretty much belly deep in the water. And uh, we kind of got a little closer to him to get a look at it to see what was going on. And he just put it, put it in four-wheel drive, and he just backed right out of there, dragged that, dragged that other one right up onto high ground, and dragging him around a little bit. Uh, he'd get tired, and I thought, well, now's our chance. So he was standing still and uh, had everybody back up and give myself a clear shot so I wouldn't shoot anybody or anything else that I didn't want to hit. It took a kind of dancing around a little bit because he'd keep moving, and I'd try and get an angle on the tines. So I didn't want to shoot the tines off of that off of that live deer yet. Uh, the landowner looked at me, and he says, don't hit the, don't hit the live one. He says, you what next week, weekend is, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I know. We'll see how it goes. So that got kind of interesting there a couple of times, but uh, the first shot I ended up hitting the left, I believe it's the left G2, and I thought, oh, this, this isn't so bad, and the, the rack kind of loosened up a little bit. They were so tight to start with, I mean, there, there was no rattle, no give, no nothing, it was just locked in there solid. After I shot the first time off, it kind of loosened up a little bit, um, you could hear it clicking and clacking a little, so I shot twice more, didn't do so hot that time, that deer didn't particularly care for that loud crack of that bullet going past him starting it was only about maybe 15 to 20 feet away um, so he'd jump around quite a bit and i'd have to jockey around for position again then I, I believe it was the fourth shot it might have been the third one one of the ones i missed but 
Um, I was just squeezing the trigger on it, and he was standing pretty still and wasn't moving, and I had a good shot at the time I wanted to hit. The trigger was just ready to break. The shot was within about a half a pound of trigger pull going off. He moved, and he put his neck right down in front of my front sight, and he almost, I almost shot him right in the back of the neck. Dad even said, too, he goes, man, that was close. He says, you were about ready to shoot, weren't you? And I said, yeah, that was, that was really close. But anyway, he finally danced around a little bit, and he stopped again. And on the, the last shot, I got a, I clipped off the G3, I believe it was. He shook around for five or ten seconds, and he got the horns loose, and away he went. How long from the time you decided that you were going to use your pistol to try and free these two deer to the point where the deer finally ran off, how long of a time period did this all take? Because it had to have been bang, bang, bang. Yeah, it was uh, like a few minutes, maybe somewhere between 5 and 10, I would guess. I'd huh. say probably closer to 5. Well, it's, it's great because a lot of times you don't hear a happy ending like this. Usually you end up, you know, I've talked to people that have found two dead deer that, that, that were locked up. I would have to think you had to feel pretty good that you actually, one of these deer actually made it out of this whole thing. Yeah, that's, that, and that was kind of nice. Like you said, usually when they get locked up that, that hard and that solid, they, they just can't get away from each other. And In a rare event, somebody will see a deer that's, carrying a dead deer head around you'll end up breaking the neck off and twisting it around and actually be carrying a deer head around i've heard that story a couple of times um, but it doesn't happen very often usually it's a pretty bad outcome for both deer and um, they both usually end up dead and somebody finds them you know next year or that winter or, or something you know this one had a pretty good outcome it was it was really fun and kind of rewarding to watch that uh, watch that 14 run off sure now is this the first time that you've ever come across something like this that's the first ones i've ever seen yep and uh I know it happens quite a bit. Um, that landowner actually said they had they found uh, two more uh, locked together, and I, I believe I don't know if I got his story exactly straight, but I believe both of those ended up dying. But it does happen on a fairly regular basis, and it you know kind of makes a guy wonder how often it happens where and these deer are never found. As from a CO standpoint, I'm sure you guys is there some sort of protocol that you guys have when you do go out on a call like this? Because I, I, I there's probably no manual for this sort of thing, is there? No, not really. It's kind of a fly by the seat of your pants type thing. You just kind of figure out what you got to do when you get there. One of my uh, former supervisors um, actually came across two of them. Somebody had called him up with one, and he's probably a braver man than I. And uh, and I talked to the landowner that was out there on that call, too, and uh, he actually pried him up. One deer was dead, and the other one was almost dead. And he walked up there and stood on the antler and grabbed the other antler and kind of pried him apart and kind of shook loose and didn't take very long and that deer ran away too so so who's who's got more more guts i don't know i think probably him do you even when you, when you saw that you made this shot uh did you actually step back and go wow did i just do that because it had to have even amazed you huh it was fairly close i mean i guess i wasn't too surprised I and mean, my, my biggest thing i was i was kind of concerned about hitting the the main beam of the live deer uh, and if you hit the main beam as solid as that is, I mean, that has the potential to kill it. So I was just really trying not to kill the thing. The, the first shot clipped off that tine, and I thought, no, this isn't so bad. And then I missed two more, and I started getting a little frustrated. I said, okay, i got to buckle down here a little bit and concentrate a little more. But it worked out good. I was kind of impressed with myself, and Dad was just kind of sitting there grinning. <laughs> well, as you should be. It's a fantastic story. Came out with a very happy ending as well. Uh, Greg Oldakowski, he's a conservation officer, telling us about a situation he ran into there just north of Wadena. Greg, thanks for taking the time to chat with us. I appreciate it, and uh, maybe we'll talk to you here in the future. Not a problem. That was a fun interview, and we hope to bring uh, more from the archives as we uh, celebrate year 15 of Brainerd Outdoors. That's going to do it for this week's show. 
Don't forget, you can catch Brainerd Outdoors just after 7, Saturday mornings, Sunday evenings at 7, and Monday mornings at 5, right here on B93.3. You can also stream the show live if you're out of town or away from your radio. Just go to BrainerdOutdoorsRadio.com. And we're all over the podcast network, so wherever you download your favorite podcast, search Brainerd Outdoors, and you can listen in that way. Uh, Freedom Firearms here in Brainerd helping us out with that. We'll see you next week for another edition of Brainerd Outdoors. I'm Brian Moon. Brainerd Outdoors has been brought to you by The Power Lodge, SCR Northern, Thielen Meats, Vimer Outdoors Archery Pro Shop, S&W Bait and Tackle, Oars and Mine Marine in Crosby, Ice Sports Custom Fish Houses, Bermel Shoe Store in Randall, and by Radco, your truck accessory pros. Join Brian Moon Saturday mornings at 7, Sunday evenings at 7, and Monday mornings at 5, right here on B93.3.